if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 21. Yeah, if, if maybe this is your first Sunday here, you've not been here in a while, you kind of wonder what this whole thing is. This is, uh, this year, our church, we've set up these five core values of being a life-giving, gospel-rooted, spirit-filled community that we can bring people to belong to. So each one of these five colors are representative of being life-giving. Uh, red is gospel-rooted. White is spirit-filled. Blue is community, and the kind of the orange one, we've still not really like nailed down what color that is. Uh, the, the orange, peach, taupe, I don't know, uh, one is, is belong. So anytime we as a church, maybe you have a story where someone gave you life, uh, we just invite you up, maybe before, after the service, during the invitation time, to move one of the green marbles. Or anytime uh, you learn something about the gospel, to like root yourself in the gospel more, move a red marble, so, so on and so forth. And this is just kind of how we're gauging this year, how we as a church fulfill what we believe God has called us to be. And so uh, you, anyone, is welcome to participate that. Maybe you're just passing through. Hey, come, come join us. We love it. That's the part of being a church. Uh, but today we're, we're wrapping up our final sermon through our life-giving sermon series. Each one of these things are going to be sermon series this year. And so this is the final sermon in our series over what it means to be a life-giving church. And just full disclosure... Uh, Wednesday afternoon rolled around this week, and I was working on, uh, you know, Jesus gives life by, by giving forgiveness, and then I realized that I didn't like that with the text, and I totally rewrote the sermon because I wanted to make sure it matched the text well. Um, so that happens from, from time to time. So if you've been here the last few weeks, we've been talking about how, how God is life-giving by bringing order to chaos. We read through Genesis 1 and, and talked about how God is bringing order in that. And then in Genesis 3, even when Adam and Eve fall, that God continues to give them life by, by loving them, by giving them hope. And then we said by forgiving them. And, and I think that's true. But the more I studied that and the more I studied the passage we're going to read in John 21 today, uh, the more it came to my attention that there's, there's more than just forgiveness at play at the gospel. Uh, it's better, I think, with the word restoration. So, so the whole idea today is that God gives life through giving Jesus. Jesus gives life through offering restoration. And you can see where those things go hand in hand, right? Re restoration is going to demand forgiveness. That, that's at play here. But I think John 21 is really getting behind this idea of Jesus offering Peter restoration, and, and we'll dive into that. But ha have you ever been in a situation where you thought you messed something up so badly that you came to a point of like no return, that, that you just, you've totally obliterated the situation, there's no hope for return? Have you ever done, so when I was little, um, at my dad's house, I had a go-kart because I was a spoiled child. Um, but my dad, my dad got me a go-kart, and so I would, uh, I had like a little cart track mapped out and like I'm talking I rode the thing so much that I turned what was once grass into dirt paths you know that that type of go-kart riding and I, I still to this day if I could go back to that old house that he lived in I could walk you that go-kart path I know know it by heart um, but one day I was out there I was I was riding in my circles just like a crazy kid I guess and I, I decided I wanted to see how hard I could cut one of the corners and I cut it a little too hard and ran my go-kart right into my stepmom's truck just Red, red marker of the go-kart right on the bumper. And so I thought, man, if she, like, I'm going to get in so much trouble. So I don't know if you know, but, like, my go-kart didn't have reverse. So I had to unbuckle, get out, push the cart back. And so I was just like, I'm just going to keep riding. Because if I stop the, the go-kart, they'll come outside. They're like, what's, what's going on? So I, I got back in the go-kart, and I just kept riding around in circles. And I thought again, well, this time I can't cut it that short. I'll try to take it wide for some reason. And I decided I was going to do that and then proceeded to wreck it right into the grapevine. I just, they had a grapevine. I knocked the entire grapevine just, just flat over. And that was the point that I realized we should go park the go-kart. 
So I took the go-kart, I parked it back in the garage, I walked back inside, and, you know, my dad's like, did you have a fun time? I'm like, yeah, I had a great time, I'm going to go play video games now, Dad. You guys ever do that situation? And then, like, 15 minutes later, I hear from outside, Philip, get out here right now. And your heart just sinks, because you're like, oh, no, I am at the point of no return. I have messed things up, and now I'm busted, right, blood on the hands, what, what do I, red on the car bumper, what do I do about this? I'll tell you what my stepmom made me do. I had to write, I had to write an essay. That was, that was my punishment. Yeah, that was, my parents were very creative about I had to write an essay about a, a kid that lied to his parents and how his life turned out and a kid that told his parents the truth and how his life turned out. My stepmom still has those essays if you're ever interested in them. So I remember it. It worked. I, I don't know. You guys ever, have you ever experienced that feeling before, right? You're, you're heading 20 miles over the speed limit on Kakawati and all of a sudden you fly past the police officer and the lights turn on. Ugh. Oh, man, how do I get out of this? Is there a way, right? Or uh, maybe if you were like me when you were little too, if you had like a little sibling, a little brother or sister, you would get kind of a little too rough sometime and they would start crying and you were scared that they were going to go tell mom. You guys ever this? Uh, you, don't tell mom. You can hit me. You can hit me. You, you don't have to tell. you guys ever do that? Do you ever do that one? Because you're trying to like think, how do I restore this in a way that I don't get in trouble? How do I deal with this situation? And welcome to what I think this, this last chaotic week of Peter's life has been. Because every one of these situations lead us to this complete need of restoration, but also the understanding that finding that restoration might prove difficult and, and awkward, if not impossible, some, sometimes. And this is perhaps the most chaotic week of, of Peter's life. John 21 um, you may even, if your Bible has headings, it'll say like Jesus' threefold restoration uh, of Peter. This is Jesus giving Peter life by offering him restoration. But in order to really understand John 21, there, there's a lot more at play that we need to go back and understand. This is, uh, if you've ever watched like a TV series and you get to the last season and they do the flashback montage where they play clips from all the other previous episodes. Do you, have you guys you know what that means? Um, this is what John's doing in John chapter 21. He's referencing back to all of these things. And we're going to talk about those. But to start out with, what we need to understand is the story in John of Peter leading up till this point. So I just want to real quickly walk you through from John chapter 13 leading into John 21 and, and what's at play with, with Peter here. So we were in John 13 two weeks ago. And this is the story where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And he gets to Peter, and Peter says, absolutely not. Someone of your caliber is not going to wash someone like mine feet. And Jesus says, do you, do you want to be clean, Peter? This is what I have to do. And Peter then opens this dialogue between him and Jesus that's going to build into Peter making some pretty heavy claims. Stuff, stuff like, well, Jesus, even if, I, even if I have to die, I'll lay down my life for you. And so this builds and builds and builds. And then you get to chapter 18. In chapter 18, Jesus has been in the garden praying and uh, all of a sudden, the arresting party comes up to, to get Jesus, to arrest Jesus. And Peter, I think, remembering, I told Jesus that I would die for him. I'm ready to do it right now. Uh, in John chapter 18, verse 10, he takes his sword and he chops off one of the servant's ears, right? And Peter's not a trained soldier. I don't know this. I'm making some inferences here. But I don't think Peter was aiming for an ear. Peter was saying... I told Jesus I was going to lay down my life for him. I'm ready to start a war right here and right now. That means Jesus doesn't get arrested. Of course, Jesus ends all of that by picking up the ear and healing the guy and then handing himself over. Just, you know, take me. I'm, I'm ready to be arrested. And this puts Peter into just crisis mode. 
everything he knew and everything he thought he knew about himself and he thought he knew about following this rabbi and this guy that healed people and brought Lazarus back from the dead just a few days prior is now just crumbling underneath him. And so we see this tone shift in Peter. He, he goes from this rambunctious, I'm ready to fight, to kind of sunken back watching from afar. His tone shifts. And so the rest of chapter 18 is him staying close enough to see what happens, but, but far enough away to be disassociated with, with Jesus. So he goes to watch Jesus' trial, and as he's getting into the high priest's courtyard, the, the servant girl who opens the door looks at him and says, hey, aren't you one of those guys that walks around with, with Jesus? And Peter says, no, 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 of course, of course I'm not one of those guys. I'm just here to watch the trial, you know, and he makes his way in. And John tells us in chapter 18 that it's a cold night, and so there in the courtyard, a couple of people have started a fire. So you got this little crowd of people standing around a fire, warming themselves. And it seems like Peter's kind of standing around that fire, listening into what's happening on this trial. He's trying to figure out what's, what's going to happen. And the light of the fire kind of lights his face up a little bit, and some people around it look at him, and they say, hey, wait a minute, you, you were one of his followers. I, I recognize you. Peter again comes in and says, no, 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 that's, that's not me. I'm, I'm not that guy at all. I don't... It's def- definitely not the guy you're, you're thinking of. But the problem was, one of the people standing around that fire was in the arresting party. In fact, John says that it was someone that was related to the guy that Peter chopped his ear off. And so this guy's like, no, you tried to kill my cousin. Like, I remember seeing you. And then this is the point in Mark's gospel that, that Jesus comes up and Mark says that he curses and swears that he doesn't know Jesus. And I think there's a little bit of ambiguity, but I think the idea is Peter just comes off and says, I swear to you on my life, I don't know this man, and if I'm lying, may God kill me right here and right now. And if you know the story, this is what Jesus told Peter would happen. And he says, after you deny me three times, the rooster will crow, and it happens. And from that point on, we don't see Peter. He's nowhere to be seen in chapter 19 for for the crucifixion. He, He comes back in again in chapter 20, but... Uh, This is when Mary reports the empty tomb to Peter and John, and they take off running, and they see the tomb. And the text says that John believes something significant had happened, but it doesn't say the same thing about Peter. And we're starting to see this inner turmoil of Peter unfold. And so they they get back, and they lock themselves with the other disciples in the room because they're scared if they get caught, something bad may happen. And then all of a sudden, Jesus appears in this locked room, and he, he gives them the Holy Spirit, and he has this conversation with Thomas, but, but according to John's gospel, there's no other conversation that happens between Peter or dealing with any of this past stuff that, that's happened. Jesus is just there. He shows himself. He reveals himself to Thomas, and then he leaves. I mean, put yourself in Peter's shoes, right? Think, think about how wonderfully reassuring that would be and how horrendously awkward that, that would be. Does, does Jesus know what I did? I mean, he told me I was going to—he has to know but if he knew, would he say something to me? Does he even still like me? What, what if I'm not supposed to be here? And do you see the turmoil that should be going on within Peter's heart through, through all of this? So Peter does what most men I know do when they're dealing with something heavy and processing complex and convoluted emotions. Chapter 21, verse 3. Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. What a man, right? Don't tell me the Bible's not human. It, it is It is telling very real stories. John's gospel assumes, I mentioned this, assumes awareness of of other gospels. And so we get this idea of Peter confronted with his own 
hang-ups and his own mess-ups and his own shortcomings and trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. His, his last week of his life has been just a whirlwind, incredible highs and devastating lows, glimpses of hope and awkward wonderings of if, if things are going to be forever disparate, uh, different, this desperate curiosity of, have I messed this whole thing up to the point of no return? Am I ever going to get to drive the go-kart again? And this is the last thing John wants to talk about as he closes out his gospel. So John, when he writes his gospel, John, John is very well read. He's one of the last authors to write in the New Testament period. Uh, very much the last gospel that ever gets written. So by the time John writes this gospel, John is making the assumption that the church has already read or they're at least somewhat aware of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That, that they know those stories that have been going around about Jesus. They know the different events and all the different happenings. And so what John's going to do, the same way he takes in chapter 1 and ties it all the way back to Genesis, and the same way he overlaps all of this Old Testament reference, he's going to do the same thing with references in other Gospels. In fact, if you have your bulletin on the back, you'll see notes, and you'll see all the different stopping points we're going to make and talk about the different cross-references between this story and, and other Gospel stories. But, but if, we need to, if we want to understand John, yeah, we, we can absolutely understand it by reading it and, and just soaking it in. But I've learned the more we attune ourselves to, to what John's trying to do, the more we see the hyperlinks. Do you guys know what a hyperlink is when you're on the computer and like, the text is blue and you click it and it takes you to another website? Yeah. John's putting that in there, not literally, but he's connecting us back to other, to other things. Um, the more we understand that, the better we get to understand what John's building in this case of Jesus right here in John chapter 21. So while, while we don't have time to go into a full detailed explanation of all of these hyperlinks, uh, I, I just want to give you the text references, draw a couple connections but between this text and between uh, what John is doing, and then ask, what does this all mean for, for Peter? And what does this mean for Jesus giving life through restoration? So uh, usually I read through the text, then we go back through, but for time's sake, I'm going to do that really annoying thing where I'm going to read, stop, talk about it, read, stop, talk about it. You'll follow along with me. I'll, I'll keep you there with, with the text. Okay, chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called twin Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's son, and two others of his disciples were gathered. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. And we're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got onto the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And when daybreak broke, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? I love Jesus' questions when he already knows the answer. It's wonderful. No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you, you'll find some. And so they did, and they were unable to haul it in because the large number of fish. The disciples, uh, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. So, so Simon says, I'm going fishing. And there's this whole story about Jesus saying, cast your nets out. And uh, even after a night of not catching anything, do you recognize a story like this anywhere else in Scripture? Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, this is the, the original calling of the sons of Zebedee, of John and James and Peter and his brother Andrew. And, and so Jesus is, is teaching uh, on a shoreline, and there's a pretty big crowd. And so in order for Jesus to kind of get some height up, he gets one of the boats that are nearby to kind of pull up on shore, and he gets up on top of the boat and, and teaches uh, from that point on. Now, the disciples had just come in from an all-night of unsuccessful fishing. They're tired. They're frustrated. You know, they, they poured all their hard work. This is their life, and all of a sudden, they don't have any fish. How are they going to pay the bills this week? And so Jesus gets done teaching, and he turns around. And he's like, hey, why don't you guys sell back out and fish again? And any good fisherman knows, you don't tell me where to fish. I tell me where to fish. 
But they said, whatever, let's, let's go fish again. And they go out, and, and they cast out their nets, and they catch so much that the nets almost rip. You guys remember this story. And in Luke chapter 5, Jesus falls to his knees at that point, and he looks at Jesus, and he goes, get away from me, because I am a sinful man. Do you think there might be some tie-ins between that story and Peter's mentality that day and the story right here at the very end of John? As Jesus says, cast your nets, and all of a sudden, after an entire night of not catching anything, they cast out, and they're just pulling in gobs of fish. There's got to be some some little flashbacks going on in their head. In fact, John picks up on it, and he says, wait a minute, this is way too coincidental. That's got to be Jesus. So he tells Peter, Peter, that's, that's Jesus. And so Peter, doing what Peter does best, makes a rash decision. And so uh, verse, verse 7, then the disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard this, that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and he plunged into the sea. So Peter dives in to the water and goes to meet Jesus. Is there another gospel story where Peter gets out of a boat into water to go and meet Jesus when the rest of the disciples stay on the boat? Yeah, absolutely, there is. I love the yes. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Mark. Mark chapter 1, you can just assume when I ask these questions, the answer is going to be yes, right? Uh, Not Mark chapter 1, sorry, Matthew uh, chapter 14. This is the story where they're out in the water, Jesus stayed on shore, and now he's walking on water to pass the boat, and they recognize that it's Jesus, and and so Peter calls out, and he says, can can I come to you? And Jesus says, yeah, get, get on out of the boat. And so Peter steps out, and a lot of times we use this story to talk about, you know, he sinks into the water, but Peter takes a step or two. And then he starts getting scared and he loses his focus on Jesus and sinks in. When's the last time Peter got wet from jumping out of a boat to go meet Jesus? It was when he lost faith. Are you seeing connections and layover and and things layered on top of one another right here? So Peter gets gets to shore. Um, It's really interesting because John doesn't give any sort of conversation that goes on between Peter and Jesus at this point. I, I feel like the picture John's painting is is Peter makes his rash decision, he dives in, he swims to shore, all the rest of the disciples are still working on getting the fish up there, and he kind of stares on the shore not knowing what to say. And Jesus is just kind of standing there, letting him soak in the awkwardness for a little bit. So Peter goes and he, and he helps get the fish. So verse 8, since they were not far from land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. And when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire with the fish lying on it. And bread. So Jesus had already caught some fish. So bring over some of the fish you've caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. So Peter gets to shore. Him and Jesus aren't really having much of a conversation, but Jesus already has something there. Charcoal fire. Have we seen a charcoal fire referenced? John 18. It's the exact same Greek phrase that when when Peter is denying Jesus, what is he doing it around? A charcoal fire. You guys ever notice how smell is like tied directly to to memories? You guys have like a certain smell that takes you back to like your grandma's cleaning products. Like that's just what she cleaned the house with and so you can smell that and and remember that. Or uh, a particular family recipe or, or driving a car for the first time, right? Smells remind us of things. I have to think, all of this is being set up for Peter to confront what all has happened in his, in his life. So it seems to just be this awkward silence until the rest of the disciples get on the boat and pull it to shore. The net's almost tearing again, tying us right back to Luke chapter 5 again. 
They get the fish and the boat in. Jesus offers them breakfast. And so he says, bring some of the fish you've caught, verse 10. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore, 153 of them, in verse 12. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they already knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. Is there another time that Jesus takes bread and passes it to his disciples? Well, there's probably multiple times, but there was a significant night just a few nights prior that Jesus broke bread with his disciples after washing their feet and saying, this is my body broken for you, and now he's doing it again. All of these connections are coming back into play here. And so Jesus took bread and gave it. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And this is finally the moment, after all of this comes into play, that Jesus starts a conversation with, with Peter. And after they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So we can start with that idea of love. If you go back again to John chapter 13, this is the whole tone of Jesus' sermon. Starting in, in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. It's love one another the way I've loved you. It's all about this hinge of love. And so Peter's going to come out in that time and say, you absolutely know I love you. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus comes back, Peter, do, do you love me? And then he asks the question, more than these. Now, just to be clear, there's a lot of ambiguity here. Uh, the Bible's not super clear on what this is referencing. Uh, different commentaries are going to tell you perhaps different things. Um, so I'm going to tell you what I think. Uh, I don't know this for sure because John doesn't say. Some people will say uh, it's in reference to the fish that Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me more than you love this career that you've chosen? Maybe. Um, some people are saying it's in reference to, to the other disciples. Peter, do you love me more than you love these other men, your brothers? Um, maybe. I think the reference, though, given the way John has set up this story to reference back to a bunch of other gospels, is that John or Peter is, Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? And the reason I think Jesus is asking that is if you go back to that night when, when Peter is having this big conversation, I would die for you. In Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 14, verse 29, here's what Peter says to Jesus. He says, Jesus, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Peter's turning this into a competition. He's saying, look, look, Jesus, if every one of these guys in here, if they abandon you and leave you, you can trust me. I'm not going to do that. I'm not that type of guy. Jesus, you can count on me. Can you see how Peter there is very different from Peter on the shoreline over here? So I think what Jesus is doing is he's saying, hey, we all know what you said that night. Let me just go ahead and ask you, how are you feeling about that right now? He's confronting Peter's sin, and he's challenging Peter's heart at this moment. Everything in John 21 has been set up for Peter to see with clarity his own sin clearly on display. From the point that he got it at the first encounter where Jesus calls him, and he falls on his knees and he says, I can't follow you, I'm a sinner. To almost getting it when he walks on water and then sinks in to the point that he's finally failed. Jesus' trial, and all of it leads to this conversation. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked, Simon, son of John, do, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to them, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep, he told him. 
He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. And he said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And after saying this, he told him, follow me. I've heard a lot of pastors take this conversation and, and play on the Greek a little bit with the different words for love. And there's, there's some credibility there, I think. But I think it's better just to do a flyover and see what God's trying to say about Peter and restoration in, in all of this. There's, there's some sort of tie between the three questions and the three denials. But what really is valuable in this is the final phrase that Jesus tells Peter in verse 19. Follow me. What does it take us back to? Peter, remember the first day I called you, I told you to follow me. And even though you failed and you've messed this up and you've ran the go-kart into your stepmom's truck, we still got stuff to do. Follow me. This is what restoration looks like. Jesus brings Peter full circle and, and through the muck and mud of Peter's own sin to the restoration of, of reality of life with him. Jesus' declaration is, Peter, you've not been disqualified from following me because you were never qualified to follow me to begin with. But my grace has offered you restoration. And because of that, you can follow me. Each, each one of these stories at play represents some point in Peter's life where he was confronted with his own shortcomings. And in each one, Jesus offers Peter new life through forgiveness and through restoration, all building to this point of divine meeting on the beach. And Jesus addresses Peter's inconsistency, but, but rather than hold that inconsistency against him, Jesus offers forgiveness and restoration. And this is going to be what then launches Peter into a life of, of ministry and preaching and teaching as the foundation of the church. Peter's life is forgiven, renewed, and restored. Why? Because Jesus gives life through offering restoration. This is the story that's been in play since the beginning of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 3, when sin deprives us of living in the image of God, what does God do? He comes in and redeems us. And offers us a second chance and re restores us. You see, the thing with sin is, is that it, it dehumanizes us. Sin leads us to attacking and taking advantage of one another. It leads us to lying and stealing and cheating to justify our own actions and protecting it all on ourselves. It leads to rash and destructive decisions that leaves chaos in, in the wake. And do you understand that God has every right to leave us there? God had every right to say, Peter, you made some bold claims and you didn't follow up. It's clear to me you're not ready for this and you're not the person for the job and could have moved on and found someone else. He's God. He's allowed to do that. And yet he chooses not to. He chooses to restore Peter instead. But God has every right to leave us where we are. He has every right to leave Adam and Eve clothed in their fig leaves in shame. He had every right to leave Peter in his own denial. But God has no desire to leave us in our sin. God has no desire to leave us in our sin. 
but he's not just going to ignore our sin. God's not going to pretend like it all just didn't happen. He's not going to sweep it under the rug and say, ah, don't worry about it. Come on, let's hug. God will deal with our sin. In fact, he has already dealt with our sin on the cross. If you would put your faith in Christ, that it has been forgiven and redeemed and restored. See, restoration is not the same thing as ignoring. Does Jesus ignore Peter's sin? Absolutely not. He set everything up to make Peter very aware of all of his mishaps and brokenness and and mess-ups. He does not ignore Peter's sin, but he intentionally takes Peter back to all the mess-ups. See, Jesus offers us life by offering us restoration in a way that confronts our sin. Listen, God, God wants to restore you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care the things that God wants to restore you back to him because he created you and he loves you and he made you in his image and sin keeps depriving you from that and he wants to forgive you and set you free. That's the whole reason Jesus came is to set the captives free. He wants to return you to the dignity and value that he created you with. But he will not do that by just bypassing your sin. He's not going to say, well, you came to church enough times. We won't worry about that one. Eh, you were generally a good person. Well, Jesus is going to confront your sin. He may even allow for some of the lingering consequences of your sin. That's, that's part of what God does. But even so, Jesus will always forgive your sin. 1 John 1, 9. For if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That if we come to him and we say, Jesus, we've messed it up. I ran the go-kart right into the truck. That he's going to find a way of restoration. He's going to forgive us. But I'm telling you, if you just want to keep sweeping your sin under the rug and pretending it's not going to be found out, and maybe your stepmom won't notice that you ran the go-kart into her truck, and maybe it'll all work out. Let me just go ahead and spoil it for you. God already knows. He's aware. In fact, God's not even surprised by it. You know why? Because he knows everything. He's aware. And yet he is still offering you full restoration full forgiveness of your sins. And this is how Jesus wants to give you life. So, so maybe we're just going to have a quick time here in a little bit of, of just singing a song. Maybe you're, you're just that person. I just, I need restoration right now, Philip. I've, I've messed up. And I, man, I would love to talk with you. Maybe you need it for the first time in your life. You've never been restored. Please come talk to me. Maybe you just want to come lay it down at the altar and say, God, I need help. I need your restoration I've messed it all up. I've made promises I couldn't fulfill. Help me. Let me end here. If God gives life through offering restoration, how does First Baptist Portalis give life? Through offering restoration. So often we build churches to be this place, even if unintentionally, where this is where we all come together and we all have our lives very well. We're all already restored. So if you're not if you're not really in that, we don't want you here because you don't look like us. And No, no, no. A church becomes life-giving when it becomes a building, a place, a body, a people of restoration. That the people out there that have done things that, ugh, 
We want to find a place that they can come to know Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that we're just like, hey, we don't know who you are. Come help us with our children's ministry. Like, no. We put our barriers up and we help and we protect. But we build this church as a place where people can be restored, where people can be redeemed, where people can be renewed because of the Savior of the universe that offers that restoration. And how do we do that? Confronting our sin. If you want First Baptist to be a place where restoration happens, it will demand we confront sin. It will not happen by just sweeping things under the rug. I must confront my own sin, and I'm going to need your help with that from time to time. And you must confront your own sin, and maybe you'll need my help with that from time to time. But we've got to confront sin. And knowing all the while that when we confront our own sin, the end result is always forgiveness. That he's calling us to forgive that sin. We forgive one another. I'm telling you, if First Baptist Church becomes a place where people can find restoration, where they can feel accepted and loved and unified and built up in a world that offers no restoration, you will find us being able to reach people you never thought possible. You will find people making changes you never thought possible because the Spirit of God will initiate it in incredible ways. But it starts with us being a church that offers life through giving restoration. So maybe what you need to, this, need to do this morning is go find restoration with somebody else. Maybe you need to go and, and say, look, things are not right, and I don't, I don't know if we're going to be able to just bypass it all, I, but I just want you to know I love you, and I want to help try to make this place a place of restoration. I, I don't know. We're just going to have a time where we celebrate that our Savior offers restoration to Adam and Eve, to Peter, to us, and we get to offer it to one another. Father God, thank you for being the God of restoration. Thank you for the redemption and love that you've offered us. And God, I pray right now that you truly would make First Baptist a church of restoration. Make us a place where people that, that maybe feel so entrapped by their own sin, let it be a place that they find freedom. God, set captives free and let us get up and run. Let us shed off the weight that so easily ensnares us and follow you in full faith. God, thank you for what you do in restoring us. It's in Christ's name we pray.